Well, I forgot to hit record on Sunday morning for the first five minutes of the sermon, so I'm doing this in my office. Um, here's where we started on Sunday. At, uh, 20 years ago, we moved into Waterfall and rented a home for the first couple of years while we were up here. We, uh, our first home was up on the top of uh, Forest Hills, and beautiful house, huge, massive garden, more rooms in the house than we knew what to do with. Um, but there were some bits of the house. It was a bit of a fall, all fall down house. The the lounge had a great big sliding uh, door uh, in a wooden frame, and that wooden frame was so rotten we could actually stick our finger through uh, in some places. When the wind blew, we made sure we sat far away from that door because we were terrified it was going to fall over. There was a lovely wooden deck outside, but the same thing. We we dare not go stand on that deck for fear of it collapsing. Um, in our bedroom, when it rained, we had to get out get out of bed and move the bed away from the wall because the wall behind the bed became a a water feature in the bedroom. The rain simply bucketed down that wall. Uh, We could have fixed these things, but it it would have cost us some money. And of course, we didn't really want to spend money on a house that wasn't ours. It was an investment in someone else's property. And so although we enjoyed living there, it was never really our home. And then, of course, the um, the owner phoned one day to say he's coming back in a month's time and we need to get out. And that got awkward. And it was a, a week to go before we found a new place to move into. And when we uh, moved there, it was great. It was a, a new house was much smaller, far more manageable, wasn't broken in any way. But we'd only been there four months when that owner phoned and said he's selling the house. Fortunately, the guy who bought from him was uh, happy for us to continue living in the house and paying rent, except that the rent went up quite significantly. Um, so the first three or four years, maybe five years of living here, we were in rented homes. And it was only when we bought the current house and moved in that we finally, you just feel a sense of we're home. Uh, and I know some of some of the folk listening and whatever have uh, experienced the same sort of thing of, renting a home and then living in a home that is their own. And there's a difference between a place that's not your own but you're living in and a place to call your own. Home really is a home, a place where you can put your feet up and be yourself and be who you are meant to be. It's a place where you can open the fridge and help yourself to whatever's inside. It's it's the place where you are secure. Um, we all need a place to dwell And so with that in mind, I'm reading from Psalm 65 this morning. Praise awaits you, O God, in Zion. To you our vows will be fulfilled. O you who hear prayer, to you all men will come. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Blessed are those you choose and bring near to live or to dwell in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. You answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness, O God our Saviour, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the turmoil of the nations. Those living far away fear your wonders. When morning dawns and evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain, for so you have ordained it. You drench its furrows, level its ridges, you soften it with showers, and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty, and your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the desert overflow, the hills are clothed with gladness, the meadows are covered with flocks, 
and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and sing. So we can make some guess about what's gone on in this psalm. It's, it's harvest time by the sounds of things, and it looks like it's been a good harvest. The rains have come, the rains have fallen, it's a good harvest, and the people have gathered to celebrate God's bounty, what God has provided, what God has given. And it may even be, we're not sure, but it may even be that this good harvest has come at the end of a really tough drought. And so the people have gathered at the temple to celebrate God's good provision. And the psalm breaks itself up very nicely for us. There's some nice little paragraph dividers. There's the first four verses and then verse 5 to verse 8 and then verse 9 to 13. So it's nicely divided for us. And um, I've been trying to get fancy with each stanza what it's all about. And I've come up with some all sorts of ways in which we could divide this. Uh, we could talk about God's electing grace. And God's omnipotent strength and God's providential provision. You could write all those words down if you like, but they're a bit big. We could go with just simply the God of grace, the God of might, and the God of plenty. Or we could look at this and see it as the the God who, who hears prayers, the God who answers prayers, and the God who cares. There's lots of ways of dividing up, but here's, here's where I'm going to divide it. Here's, here, if you want to write sermon titles down in the back of your fancy new bulletins this morning, you can go with this. Who's coming home? Whose home is it anyway? And what's for dinner? That's how we're going to divide it up. And, and what we'll see in this is that we get to experience what the people, the old people of Israel experience. That God abundantly meets our needs because he is our father who has called us to dwell in his presence. So who's coming home? Let me say that the, the story of exile is a story that runs right through the Bible. Exile starts in Genesis 3 and exile ends in Revelation 22 when God's people come home to his city and to his place and dwell in his presence. But if you think, right in Genesis chapter 2, chapter 3, God places Adam and Eve in the garden, and they're home. They're naked and unashamed. That's what it means to be at home, for some of you. I'm just... (laughs) They're naked and unashamed. They're, They're in harmony with their creation. There is intimacy with one another. There is communion with God. There is no complications to life. There is safety and security. That's why they can be naked and unashamed. But then, of course, sin enters the frame. They become exiled from the garden. They must leave their home. They're sent out. Shame enters the relationship. There is disconnect with their environment. There is distance from God. They must cover up because they're exiles. And exile through the Bible continues. Abraham, in a sense, becomes an exile. God calls him out of the place where he lives, even though the place where he lives is not really home anyway. But God says, let's go, we'll find you a new home. And Abraham spends the rest of his life as a wanderer, looking for a home that is still to come. Hebrew says he looked with faith to the city that was to come that hadn't come yet. Abraham spends his whole life as a wanderer. His descendants end up as exiles in Egypt. And after being exiles in Egypt for a while, they become slaves in Egypt. 
They leave Egypt for a better place, but become exiles again as they wander in the desert for 40 years with no home. Finally, they get into the promised land. They, they are given a home, but they're not there for long before they're again sent into exile. They're sent into Babylon because they can no longer live in home because they're just like Adam and Eve. Their sins find them out. They're cut off from home. And Jesus comes as an exile. He comes from heaven to earth. As a child, he literally is an exile as he runs to Egypt. He comes to Africa as a refugee, as an exile. As a man, he's exiled from his hometown when, when he goes and, and wants to preach and to, to perform miracles. And he says the prophet has no honor in his own town because they chase him out. He has no home. He says the, the son of man has no place to lay his head. And then he arrives at the city of Jerusalem, the place that should be his home, the place that should welcome him as home, because this is the king who has returned and his own people reject him and, in a sense, exile him and take him outside of the city walls where he is executed. The story of exile runs through the Bible. And the point is for us to see that we too are exiles far from home. Like Adam and Eve, our sin has led us into exile from the garden, from God's paradise. Like Abraham, we are wanderers looking for a better place. Like Israel, we're exiles in the desert hoping to find a home. And all too often, we pitch our tent at a little oasis in this philosophical oasis to say, this will be my home for a while. And if I, if I adopt the, these cultural standards and norms, I will be accepted. And I will be able to be who I truly am. All that I was made to be. And we set up our homes in this place of exile, only to find that, that it turns into the slavery of Egypt. We think that in this place and with these people, I can be myself and I can find myself and I can shake off the shame and get rid of the mask and be true to me, only to find that we, we need to stay covered up and hidden because we're not really home yet. And Psalm 65 counters that. Psalm 65 says, come home. Come back to paradise. Come and be unashamed. Come and put your feet up. Come and set down roots. And the question is, who, who comes home? Who's invited to come home? See, here's Israel. They've gathered at the temple to celebrate. And, 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 and there is joy here in being in the presence of God. There is joy in living in God's place. Because that's what exiles are looking for. The joy of being in the presence of God. And even the, the modern exiles of our world who, who, who reject God, even they are unknowingly looking for this place called home which is only found in the presence of our Lord. So who comes in? The first clue is this. We think it's David. David who says, when our sins overwhelm us. There is a clear sense in that in what it is that actually makes us exiles from God's presence and what makes us exiles from one another. And quite frankly, what makes us exiles from ourselves because actually we are exiles from ourselves. There is a, a dissonance, a discordance within us. And all of that has its root in our sinful nature. 
And we blame other things. Oh, it's our environment. Oh, it's our family. Oh, it's my weird father, my bizarre mother. Oh, it's, it's, um, you know, it's the school. It's the government. But David sees here that our, our sins overwhelm us. There is this sense of the weight of our guilt. And, and I, th- I think one of the first steps in coming home is recognizing what it is that has made us exiles in the first place. I've been talking to someone in the last couple of weeks, not a part of our church. So don't look to see who this might be, okay? Somebody outside of our church who's had some major issues, who has, who has committed grievous sin. And I, I said to him a couple of weeks ago, I said, do you think I'm overreacting? And his response was, yeah, I think so. And his whole thing is that what I said, what I did, the inappropriateness of the moment, it was the drugs that made me do it. It was the alcohol in the system that mixed with the drugs that made me do it. And, you know, I've had a tough couple of months. And, you know, we've, we've, we've found a rejection in some of our relationships. And that's what made me do it. And there's been, for the last few weeks, just this whole thing of, it's other things that have caused what I have done. And he's not at a place yet of going, my sin has overwhelmed me. And until, I, I think, I've said to him, until he gets to that place of my sin has overwhelmed me, you'll remain in exile. You'll remain outside. The first step is to go, my sin has, has, has overwhelmed me. And, and, and it's not just, listen, be careful, right? It's not just the sin of I took a chainsaw to the tourists three years ago and left them in a heap that sin, I mean, because we are, oh, that's terrible. Uh, for us to recognize that sometimes our sin is not just chainsawing people's heads off, but, but sometimes it's, it's, it's the sin of our own self-righteousness and the sin of our own pride, the, the sin beneath the sin. And I think that anyone even remotely self-aware is aware that there is something wrong inside, that we are not as we should be. So the question is, what do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that we are, uh, there's something wrong inside and we're not as we should be? How do we, how do we fix that? And so David says here, he says, when our sins overwhelmed us, you forgave. You forgave our transgressions, except uh, there's a better word than forgave. If you've got your NIV Bible, you'll see that there's a, there's a little dark letter next to that, which indicates that there is a footnote at the bottom of the Bible, which says that there's, there's maybe a different word that you could use. If you don't have an NIV, you've got a King James Version or English Standard, you might have the, the different word in the actual text. When our sins overwhelmed us, you atone for our sins. Atone is a wonderful word. Atone in the Old Testament, the, the, the root of the word atone means to cover over. To cover over. So when your wife asks you to sweep the lounge. That never happens, right? And you, you willingly agree to take the broom into the lounge and you sweep the lounge and you sweep all the dust together and then you realize that you've forgotten to bring the dustpan with you. And it's too much of a schlep to walk back to the kitchen to get the dustpan. So what do you do? You lift the carpet and you sweep it under the carpet, right? And then you put the carpet down, right? And your wife comes in and she says, honey, what a great job. And you are filled with that glowing warmth inside of having done something good. 
for a change. And um, except that every time you look at the carpet, the niggle of guilt remains, right? Because you know that the dust hasn't gone. Now, now that's kind of a bit like what the picture of atonement in the Old Testament is. Atonement in the Old Testament is that your sin is covered over. There was even a day when they did that, when they celebrated it. There was a specific day in the year called the Day of Atonement. And they would bring in a couple of goats, and the priest would lay his hand on the head of one goat and send that out into the desert. And that, that goat was called the scapegoat. And that's some, that was a symbolic thing of, of us transferring our sin onto the head of this goat. That's what a scapegoat means, that it takes, it, you know, he takes the blame, not me. And so that goat is left out into the desert. Then the other goat is slaughtered. And the idea is that this goat dies in my place. The idea was that the goat covers the sin of the people. That this goat is my substitute. But the problem is, and Hebrews 10 makes it clear, that a goat is a poor substitute for a human being. So if, like us, you spent all day yesterday watching sport, whether you watched the rugby in the morning, the cricket in the afternoon, or the soccer in the evening, at some point in every one of those games, a substitute was made. Right? So, so yesterday afternoon, Lungi and Gidi had to go off the field for a bit. What a legend he is, eh? Uh, and he had to go off the field, and they replaced him with Sipamla. And he came on the field, and he fielded the ball a few times. And I think we would all agree that, that had Lungi gone off, and they'd replaced him with a goat, things would not have gone well on the field, right? Or, or last night, if, you'd been, if you were watching Liverpool being beat... By Watford, 3-0. And at some point in the game... So, Jenny, I just want you to take this message back to Brian, because I know he loves Liverpool as well. So this is, this is just for Brian and Luke this morning. Um, so, so, so when at some point in the game they substituted players... Who did they substitute last night anyway? Did they bother? Um, I, because I think in that game, it probably would have been better to have brought a goat on in place, because they wouldn't have played words. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. They simply remind us that next year we have to do another sacrifice. So just like the carpet is a constant reminder of the dust that hasn't gone away, right? And then Jesus comes and John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's a change that's gone on. Something happens in the New Testament and there is a, there is a change in this understanding of atonement. That no longer is it just that sin is covered over, but Jesus comes and now it's this, the, the, the blood of the Lamb takes away the sin of the world. And in fact, the New Testament begins to, to change the word. And, and, and instead, of, instead of being Jesus who is our atoning sacrifice, it becomes Jesus who is our... These are big words. You can write them down. Jesus is our propitiation, our propitiatory sacrifice, which literally means the sacrifice that takes away wrath. Now, you need to see this in this passage and get excited here because David says, you forgive, you atone... 
When our sins overwhelm us, you, O oh God, atone for us. Now, now, here's why that should make you excited. In the Old Testament, there was still this understanding that you need to atone for your sin. You go to the priest, and the priest makes a sacrifice on your behalf. You pay for a sacrifice. You offer sacrifices in order to atone for your sin. And to be honest, in our modern world, a lot of people still live with that kind of understanding. That I need to self-atone. I've got to make it up. I've done something wrong. How can I fix it? Oh, I'll pay more money. I've done so- How can I get rid of my guilt? I'll give money to charity. How can I deal with my burden? Well, I'll, I'll pray more. I'll take, I'll take double communion. I'll do extra Bible readings. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure that when those Facebook, if you love Jesus, send this on to 10 friends, that you like and send to 20 friends. Because we know that Jesus is keeping a record, right? Because we want to self-atone. And that was the mindset of the Old Testament. I must atone. But did you get what David said there? When our sins overwhelm us, you atone. You, oh God, atone for me. David is a thousand years ahead of his time. And in fact, what it says, what it makes clear, is that those who lived by faith in the, New, in the Old Testament knew exactly what they were putting their hope in. They were not putting their hope in a sacrifice that they had made. But in the fact that God and God alone atones for us. I got excited by that. I don't know about you. But that David understood long before Jesus came that we cannot self-atone. We cannot cover our own sin. No amount of sacrifices and offerings and hard work can take away our sin. God must do it for us. He must atone. And he has atoned for you. And this is the one who comes home. The exile comes home not because they've paid off their debt, but because he has paid our debt. And the exile comes home not because they've suffered enough, but because he has suffered in our place. He has atoned. But there's more. Blessed are those that you have chosen. We could spend weeks, and in fact, theologians have spent centuries debating this word, right? Blessed are those whom God has chosen. Who chose? Do we choose God? Well, don't answer that. Um, do we have free will to choose? Well, yeah, we do. And, and, and I know some of you are reading that and are immediately going, well, you know, Joshua chapter 2 and wherever else. But, but just, just read this. As the word of God is, blessed are those that you choose. God does the choosing. And yes, of course we have free will. Of course we we, we make choices. I I, I had to choose today between cornflakes and all bran. Um, I chose all bran. It's a good choice, right? Um, I freely chose that. No one forced me. Uh, This is not fate. And yet in all the choices that we make, our choices are still limited. Um, God is the only one who is truly free. And his choices come first. So so some people try and get around this whole God chooses us thing. And we can use big words, right? Election, predestination, whatever. 
Um, some, some, some like, like to say, well, God sits outside of history and looks down through time and he's able to see the choices we make and then makes his choices based on our choices. But that makes God reactionary and makes our choices primary. And that's not how the Bible sets it out. Uh, God's choice is primary. God, God initiates. Now, there's two sides, and one day we'll get to a passage that says something about how you chose him, and great, I'll preach all about how you choose him on that day. But on this day, he chooses. God initiates. He makes the first move. And were it not for his initiating action, no exile would come home. I think the picture we've got to keep is this. It's, it's the picture of, of Lazarus. And you remember the story of Lazarus who died and four days later Jesus pitches up at the tomb side, right? And when Jesus comes and stands at the tomb and he says to Lazarus, Lazarus, if you want to come out, raise your hand. <laughs> right? Lazarus, if you want to come out, repeat this prayer after me. Lazarus, if you want to come out, just, just wiggle a finger, give some indication and I will give you a panado to help your, your, your sore head. Here's what it, is, what it says in the original Greek. And Jesus turneth unto Peter and said, Behold, Peter, taketh up thine ukulele and begin to play just as I am. <laughs> and with every eye, every eye closed and every head bowed and with the doors locked, Lazarus, raise your hand. That's not how it went, did it? <laughs> Lazarus, come forth. And Jesus speaks to the dead and calls the dead to life. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive. And so, to be clear, this is, a, as I said, 500 years of debate on this issue. And there is another side. And I don't have to, time to spend hours dealing with how this all works. But just see this passage for what it is. Blessed are those that you choose. How do I know if God's chosen me? Do you love Jesus? Do you want to love Jesus? Do you want to come home? Then take that as a good sign that he has chosen you. And then he takes it a step further because it's not just those whom you've chosen, but those whom you bring. He brings. Blessed are those that you choose and bring near. God brings us near. And we're told later on in the book of Hebrews that, that it's Jesus who brings us near to God. I don't bring you into God's presence. Our wonderful music this morning did not bring you into God's presence. Jesus brings us into God's presence. Singing helps us focus on him. Singing is a great response of the gospel. Singing teaches us and trains us all sorts of things. But ultimately, Jesus brings us into the presence of God. He is our high priest. He brings us near. He brings us in. He brings us home. And he calls us to dwell in his house. And here's what we find when we come into his house, that we are exiles no more. Having come into his house, we can now be naked and unashamed. And I'm not suggesting that that be the clothing attire for next Sunday morning service. But we are able to be who we are and who we are meant to be because he slowly transforms us by his grace. And it takes us a while as exiles who have been brought home to settle into our new home and to settle into this new culture. It takes us a while to learn to trust this God who has brought us in. It takes us a while for us to take the mask off. It takes us a while to realize that we no longer need to self-atone. It takes us a while to recognize that our fellow exiles are our brothers and sisters. 
and that we are safe and that we are where we belong. But he has brought us in. And the final thing of that opening stanza is that he then fills us. He satisfies us. We are satisfied in him. All our longings, all the good things. And this is not just a longing for a bigger car or better abs or whatever. But it is that the deep longings of our soul are filled. The longing to be loved. The longing to be long. The longing to be truly human. The longing to be home. Met in him. The next two parts of the sermon will be very quick. Very, very quick, I promise. The second stanza gives us some insight into the God whose home it is. The God whose home it is that we, into, into which we have come. And he tells us he is God our Savior. He is the hope of the ends of the earth. He is the creator of all things. He sets the mountains in place. But, but hear this as well, right? That he says he, he stills the roaring sea. He quiets the waves. It's what we sang about this morning. It's, it's why we sang what we sang this morning. To reinforce what we read here. The sea back then was a place of chaos. Nobody, no sane person went to the sea. No one went frolicking in the waves. No one went down to the promenade to go and lick an ice cream as it dribbles down your chin. Nobody did that. Only mad people went to the sea to catch fish. They were extremely brave or stupid. Because the sea was a place of chaos, it was a place of monsters, it was a place where storms came from. When people go to sea, they often don't come back. So, so we don't go to the ocean, we don't go to the sea. It's scary. And what does God do to this scary place of chaos? He stills it. He brings peace. Like when the disciples are with Jesus in the boat and he's fast asleep and the storm rages and he... They wake him up and say, don't you care that we're dying? And he says, peace, be still, and the storm stops. Or what I read, where they're in the boat and the wind is against them. And he walks out and immediately he's in the boat. And immediately the wind dies down. Because he brings peace. He stills the storms. He stills, he says, not just the the roaring seas, but he stills the turmoil of the nations. And the nations are just merely those who are still in exile and who oppose him. This is not something political. Don't just read nations as being political boundaries. It's, it's anything that opposes him. And it may be government structures like North Korea or, 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 or ISIS. It, it might be philosophical mindsets like dodgy university professors. It might, may be cultural ideologies like the LGBTQTI, uh, whatever other letters. It may, be, it may even be our, our cultural structures of socialism or capitalism. These are all the places that we pitch our tents in the hope that these things will give us meaning and identity. These are all the places that we go while we're exiles. These are the mini oasis in the desert where we think, if I can just get these things right, then I will be, I, I can be all, I can, all, all that I truly am. If I can just join in this LGBTQ community, then, then I can be who I really am. And yet... All of those philosophies and ideologies and whatever are just one more noise, moment of chaos. Just more turmoil. And God is the one who stills the turmoil. And the point is that when we come home, when we come in from the cold, He stills the turmoil. He stills the storms. And it's not to say you get a trouble-free ride through life. It's not to say that you never get hit by the waves. But He certainly does still the storms that rage in our hearts. And He brings peace to bear in the chaos around us. 
And I love how this, this, this little section of the psalm ends where, where in the, at the end of verse 8 he says, when, when, the, when the night gives way to day, we sing for joy. When the darkness lifts and the morning comes. And, and again, it's the same kind of idea of, uh, you know, the, the, the nights are always scary, aren't they? The things that go bump in the night. The monster in your cupboard or under your bed. Right? When the Sandman comes. And yet, in all the fears of the darkness that comes, the, 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 sun, the sun rises. The sun comes up. And when the darkness lifts, and he says we sing for joy. And some of us need, well, we all need to, I think some more than others, need to sing for joy. We gather on a Sunday morning, sing. I know you've got a terrible voice, I get it. Sing, bellow it in the person's ear in front of you. Let them hear how awful your voice is, and yet that you will still praise God and and sing with joy. Because the darkness is gone, right? We're in the day, and not just any day, this is Sunday. This is the day that the Lord was raised, We sing for joy. Finally, what's on the table? What's for dinner? And that last little bit is just God's providential care. How God cares for the land. He sends the rain and the plants grow. The deserts bloom. Fruit falls off the tree. Flocks cover the hillside. It says at one stage there something about um, uh, things falling off the the, the wagon. Uh, Your carts overflow with abundance. In in the older translation, it says your wagons wagons drip fatness. Did you like that? I know some of you are saying, I wish I could drip a little bit of fatness. Um, but but the, 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 again, the image is just of overabundance, of God's abundant goodness. And we've got to see this on one hand, on, on face value for what, exactly what it is, that God provides our food, that God gives us what we have. Uh, God provides food for the whole earth, and he, he even uses that big fancy word, he has ordained it to arrive in this way. He has ordained food to arrive, not by magic, but by agricultural means. And I think sometimes we think it's by magic because we go to the shop and, oh, look, there's food. We buy it, we take it home. We don't really have this concept of where it comes from. But God has ordained things to happen in a certain way. Seed in the ground, rain falls, sun shines, seed grows, fruit appears. We never go up to a tree and go, oh, gee, how did those grapes get there? They, we know how they got there, right? Not by magic. God has ordained things to work in certain ways. He has put together an ordered universe. It is not arbitrary. It is not random. And when we see that, we've got to see that all things come from him. So Martin Luther said this. He said, when we get to that bit in the Lord's Prayer where we say, give us this day our daily bread, it's not just a request. It's a request, but it's, it's also a recognition of, of the means by which God uses to meet the request. And so he says we should be thankful not just for the bread, but for the shopkeeper who sold us the bread. And for the delivery guy who got the bread to the shopkeeper. And for the baker who baked the bread, who got it to the delivery guy, who got it to the the, the shopkeeper. And for the miller who ground the flour, who got it to the baker, who gave it to the delivery guy, who got it to the shopkeeper, who brought it to us. And for the farmer who planted the seed and harvested the grain, who got it to the miller, who ground the wheat to get it to the baker, who cooked the bread, who gave it to the delivery guy, who dropped it off at the shopkeeper, who sold it to us. And 
We recognize the rain that fell from the sky that comes from God's hand that watered the seed, that caused the DNA within the seed to do what DNA does to produce the seed that the farmer harvested that got to the... You, 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 you get it, right? And Martin Luther says, we're thankful for the bread. <laughs> and we don't recognize what came before. And that each step along the way is part of God's ordained means of feeding you. And we should give thanks for the spa. And we should give thanks for the mill. And we should give thanks for the farmer. And we should ultimately give thanks to God who sent the rain who caused it to germinate. The clothes you eat, the food you wear, the tech you enjoy, all good gifts from God. And the deeper thing that goes beyond that is that not only do we have food and are satisfied, but in a deeper sense we are satisfied in Him because He cares for us. He gives us what we need. We are satisfied not because we eat prawns and rump steak, but because our deepest and most lasting joy is found in Him because we dwell in His presence. So won't you come home today? Won't you come home today? Won't you stop being a wandering exile, pitching your tent at random oases along the way, thinking that this place will give me meaning. Oh no, pack my tent, move on. This will give me what I want. Oh no, pack my tent, let me go somewhere else. And I'll become truly me over there. No, I better pack my tent up again. Stop being an exile. Come home. Because as much as he has chosen you, he has invited you. He invites us to come. The invitation is open to all to come and to come home and to find rest in Him, to come and set down your roots and dwell, to dwell in His presence. So let Him still the storms, satisfy the home. Come, come home, for blessed are those who dwell in Him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for what you give to us. Thank you for this wonderful promise today. That we who are exiles, who are far off, we whose sins have separated us ourselves from you, are invited to draw near, are called to come in. For you, O oh God, have atoned for us. Not only, not only have you covered over our sins, you, you have taken our sins away. And thank you that we don't need to try and atone for ourselves, for you have done it. Thank you that you are, you are the God who, who abundantly provides for those that you have called home. That you meet our deepest needs and longings. And I, Lord, I pray for us today because many of us... We've come home and then we, we, we go out for a wander. And then we come home and then, then we go and wander some more. And we, we come home and we... Lord, because our hearts are still hard. And because I think sometimes perhaps we don't trust that you'll provide our every need. And I think sometimes from our, our home, from the window of our home, we look out and we see a mirage in the desert and think that's what will give us what we really want. Lord, forgive us when we run away. Draw us back to yourself. May we be reminded again and again and again that you meet our every need. Fill our souls. Still the storms. Satisfy 
our longings in you. Amen. I know it's late, but let's, let's sing a song because you don't have tea today. I'm sorry, so we can sing instead of tea. I'm going to sing Grace on Top of Grace just because it's a cool song and because, well, it captures some of what we say this morning, that he gives us grace beyond grace.